project. Hope you have a great time. Happy New Year, everyone. You got taller. A lot taller. Oh, yes. <laughs> Hope you had a wonderful uh, Christmas and New Year's Eve. This is our version of a blizzard out there today, right? It's about that time of year. It's good to be uh, back with you and looking forward to another year of ministry uh, together. As we start uh, another year, it's often useful to take a step back and just reconsider some very basics of our faith. So we will be doing that this morning. Um, next week, just to give you a little sense of where we're headed in the next couple of months, Lord willing, as a church, next week we'll start a, a series we're going to call Basics. And for five or six weeks, we're going to reconsider who we are as a church, what we're trying to accomplish as a faith family. And then uh, after that, we're planning to jump into the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, if you prefer. Uh, that is one of the smaller Old Testament prophets. So if you've never read it, you might go ahead and start looking at that together. That will lead us up till Easter. And then um, I think after Easter, we're going to take a couple of weeks to consider some of God's main character traits. So Lord willing, that'll bring us around to the summer. So that's where we're headed together. But for today, we just want to spend one week looking at a passage in 1 Thessalonians. So if you would turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're using a Bible from under the chair, that's on page 682. Page 682. So 1 Thessalonians 4 is where we'll be today. And bear with me as I get used to sitting down again. This is a weird experience. That's okay. Thank you, Abby. Uh, so 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, as we're turning there, maybe by way of, of introduction, um, friends, just as sure as the day that you were born is going to come another day, the day you're going to die. Unless Jesus returns first, all of us will meet that fate. And the sum total of our lives are going to be reflected on our gravestones with a little dash. So let's take me, for example. Uh, 1976, I was born. And uh, as we look at that, the thing we want to make the point of conversation is the last blank. So when am I going to die? How long do I have? But that's not really the question. The question is, what will I do with the dash? What will I do with the time that I have left. Because the day I will die is already fixed. God's already determined it. It might be three months from now, could be 30 years from now. For some of us, it could be a lot longer than that. But that really doesn't matter all that much. The more important question is, what will I do with the time I have left? The remaining days the Lord gives me, what will I live for? What will the focus of my life be? Just think of it, all the work, all the sleep, all the eating, all the fighting, all the laughter, everything our lives consist of is going to be summarized in that little tiny dash. What do you want the rest of your dash to be made up of? Nobody can predict 
the day you're going to die, but God knows. But the question is, what will I do with the rest of my dash? That's what I'd love for us to consider together today. Um, I would submit to you today for your consideration that out of an endless number of things that you could focus on in the rest of your dash, none is more important than living to please God. That whether you're given three days, three weeks, three months, 30 years, that your life will have been well spent for the remainder of that dash if it's spent for God. You see, that's the great aim of our lives, isn't it? To live for the glory of God, to live for His pleasure, His honor. The point of the dash is to please God. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is going to tell us. Let's read the first couple of verses by way of introduction, and then we'll set up the rest of the passage. It says in verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you, in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you would do still more and more. For you know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. First Thessalonians 4 tells us that the way we walk, now that's a little close to home for me at the moment, but it's just a, a way of saying the way you go about living everyday life. So the way you take each step of life, do so in a way that you please God. And the rest of the chapter outlines specific ways to go about that. I thought about two or three months ago when we planned to look at this passage, we could cover them all in one morning, but it didn't end up that way. We're just going to look at the first one. But I would encourage you in the next week or so to read the rest of the chapter uh, particularly verses 1 to 12, and get together with another Christian and together consider what these verses teach us about living to please God. But before we look at the specifics, don't miss the wonder of those first two verses, really of just this simple idea. You can please God. You can please God. You can please God. Wow! Isn't that incredible? We as broken people can please God. We were alienated from God. We were at war with Him. We were rightly under His wrath. So much so that our very best deeds... The scriptures tell us we're as filthy rags before him. So deep was our spiritual darkness that we were incapable of anything spiritually good. And yet now, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, everything has changed such that it's possible for you and me to be people who bring a smile to God's face. We are now united to him. We're God's children. We're saints. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been forgiven and made free and reconciled and righteous. We're His. And because of that, we can now live lives that are pleasing to God. What a joy that is. As you look forward to a new year, Christians, it's possible to live this year 
in a way that brings honor and delight to your Creator. If you don't hear anything else today, I hope that you hear that, that that is possible to please Christ. How? Well, this text breaks out in two ways. We'll just look at the first, but I want to give you an overview very quickly. First, it says that we can live to please God by growing in holiness and in a particular aspect of that holiness. That's what we'll consider today. But then verses 9 to 12 say that we can live to please God by growing in love and that there's certain ways that works itself out. We don't have time to get to those today, but that's the way the passage breaks itself down. We can grow in holiness and we can grow in love. Now let's consider the first together. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly now warn you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. A life that pleases God is a life set apart for God. That's what holiness means. That's what sanctification is. These are big churchy words, especially for the day after a lot of us were out late. But that's simply what holiness means, is a life set apart for God. Being set apart from evil and devoted to what's good. Friends, nothing is more beautiful, useful, and practical than the pursuit of living a holy life. Far from detached and um, impossible, holiness is what you were created for. And when we synthesize and pull together everything the Bible says about holiness, it tells us that there's two kinds. And this passage doesn't make any sense unless you understand the way these two kinds of holiness work themselves out in practice. So this will be the, maybe the most theologically weighty part of the message. So hang with me two or three minutes, and then I think it'll get a little bit easier in terms of understanding. But the Scripture tells us that there's a kind of holiness that we might call positional holiness, meaning that you're, if you're a Christian, then you have been given holiness, that in your standing before God, you are already made holy. That's why the Scriptures say there's not a certain class of Christian that after you're dead, if you've lived a particularly good life, then you can be called a saint. No, it's everyone who's saved. Everyone who is a Christian is already a saint. You're already a holy one. It's a synonym for being a Christian. Now, how can that be? Look at the way we've lived the last 24 hours. How can that be? Well, God takes the perfection of Christ and gives it to you. And so, when he looks at you, Christian, he regards you as he regards his son. And so, it's a permanent status before God. 
And it's not dependent in any way upon your actions. So to say that directly, Christian, before God, your standing is as holy as you're ever going to get. You are already regarded as completely holy in your position because you possess the full holiness of the Son. Isn't that great news? There could be no better news today that you have been given the gift of complete holiness before Christ, independent of your actions, completely based on the actions of Christ. Now, there's another kind of holiness, and it's that other kind that this passage is speaking about. It's what theologians call conditional holiness. It's the inevitable result of being holy in our position. It means that in our daily condition, we ought to be pursuing a lifestyle that's reflective of what God has given us. In other words, holy people learn to live increasingly holy lives. So, a holiness of position means that we will be pursuing a holiness in condition. If you care nothing for that, then you don't have holiness of position. One is the inevitable result of the other. Now, you may have noticed the little phrase in the passage we just read, for this is the will of God. All of us want to know the will of God, don't we? How many hundreds of hours of our prayers are spent saying, God, what is your will? And typically what we mean is, should I take this job or pursue this degree or marry this person or have a child or have another child or invest in this way? And certainly those are part of the will of God. But the vast majority of times when the Bible says this is God's will, it's talking much more about the revealed will of God, the sanctification process for a Christian. So if you want to live in the will of God this year, you don't even need to pray. God, show me your will. You can simply say, God, help me to walk in your will. And that's in obedience to your word. That's incredibly freeing, isn't it? I was um, in my 20s facing a huge decision in terms of career path and became absolutely consumed with trying to understand God's will. So much so that I think I neglected to pursue living a holy life. Isn't that silly how that can happen? Don't make that mistake this year. Follow not in the failed footsteps of your pastor, but in obedience to Christ by living out his will. Verses 3 through 8 hone in on something rather surprising. It says, live a life that's pleasing to God and pursue your sanctification. And this is part and parcel with what sanctification means. Live a life of purity when it comes to your sexuality. My guess is you didn't come today hoping to hear a sermon about purity, but that's what we have. The Bible's consistent message on sex is quite simple. I think you could put it in three buckets, and here's what they are. First, sex is good. Second, sex has a context. And third, 
sex outside that context is always harmful. Sex is good. Sex has a context. Sex outside that context is always harmful. Let's spend a few minutes on each of those. That all right? You're not running for the doors yet. <laughs> First, uh, sex is good. Uh, brothers and sisters, sex within a biblical marriage is a wonderful gift of God. It's something to be enjoyed. And so, if I could speak to those in the room who are married for just a couple of minutes, and the rest of you, listen in. Perhaps God would have a spouse for you in the future. Husbands and wives, God's design is that your love for one another would be expressed in complete commitment, in complete transparency. And part of that is in your sexual union. The scriptures tell us that sex is good for procreation, that this is the way God has designed us to fill the earth. It says it's good for physical pleasure. There's an entire book in the Bible devoted to that. It says it's good for emotional connectivity, that it's good for serving each other, that sex is good. Now, before we go on from that point, it may be helpful for me to say something I'm not sure I've said about this in the past. And that's that as uh, someone who's pastored hundreds of people now over a span of two decades, I have never got into a conversation with a couple about this and discovered that these two people, husband and wife, have exactly the same sexual desires and sexual drive. It hasn't happened a single time. It seems that we married folk fall somewhere along a, a continuum in terms of desires and frequency preferences. And the way you deal with that, married people, will have a tremendous impact upon the health of your marriage. If you simply stuff that in the realm of things we can't talk about, then you're going to do great harm to your marriage. If you pretend that doesn't exist, you will do great harm to your marriage. This is something to come into the light and to talk about and to work together on. Now, we can't spend much time here, but let me encourage you simply to think of it in this way. I'll just use my own marriage as an example. <laughs> in this general way. <clears throat> God has given me a spouse. Her name is Jill. And my job, therefore, is to say, how has the Lord given me this person to love, to serve, and to lead? And so, in particular in this area, how do I express love and service to Jill when our sexual desires are not the same? The question isn't mainly what do I want, what are my rights, but rather why has God given me this particular person and how do I love her in particular? Friend, husband or wife, if you pursue that issue in that way, then I believe any challenge you might face eventually will work itself out. I would submit to you that it will probably involve sacrifice 
whether that's more or less than you would have desired. And maybe that's why God tends to bring people together who don't want exactly the same way, exactly the same thing, exactly as often as you do. But don't make the mistake of ignoring this. It's a part of your relationship you just must address. You've got to. So sex is good. Second, the scriptures tell us that sex has a context. And really, we've already addressed this, but just momentarily. The context, according to the Bible, for sex is within a biblical marriage. Husband and wife committed to each other for life. There is no circumstance in which any sexual behavior of any kind outside of a biblical marriage is appropriate. None. Verse 3, if you look at it, is crystal clear. God's will. And the text goes out of its way to flash a blinking red light. It says, stop. Look around. Pay attention. There are dangers everywhere. Don't miss this. Those of you who are superhero fans, this is the only place there's an Avenger in the Bible. It says that God's will for us, whether we're married or single, young or old, heterosexual or homosexual in desire, God's will is that we would abstain from any and all sexual sin. Now, brothers and sisters, the designer of sex says this is its rightful place. Christians, we must not lose our way here. A third, this naturally bridges into the third thing that Scriptures tell us about sex. It says that sex outside of its context is always harmful. If I can make a rather bold statement that I believe is true, unless you're a child or perhaps a young teenager in the room, we've all experienced the effect of sexual sin. All of us. We have either ourselves committed it and therefore experienced the harm of sin, or we've been the recipient of it and therefore experience the harm of sin. So, except for the children among us, we have universally all experienced that sex outside of its context is detrimental to us. Now, of course, to varying degrees with different amounts of intensity, but none of us, none of us have escaped this area of life unscathed. It's universal. Sex improperly used, even if it's nothing more than our thoughts, has a damaging, crippling effect upon our growth in the things of God. Maybe that's why God takes it so seriously that he says, this is God's will. To put it another way, if you want to be a person that lives in a way that pleases God, then you simply must keep sex in its God-given context without exception. If you want to make progress spiritually in 2017, start by stopping all 
sexual sin today. Before your hand hits that door to leave in 25 minutes, resolve in Christ to say, I'm done. That relationship's over. That internet connection's getting shut off. That emotional fling at work is done. The entire year can be different in Christ if you'll make that kind of commitment in Him. And then put your Christian community to use to help you stay pure. Friend, I woke up this morning with this a thought. It's rather weird. It tends to happen on Sunday mornings. I wake up with a thought in the message. And here's the thought. Sexual sin is a liar. It's a liar. You see, it promises pleasure without impact on the rest of your life. And that doesn't happen. It promises companionship without any need for commitment. And that also can't happen. Don't believe it. It's a liar. Now let's deal candidly, though, for a few minutes with an obvious objection. Yes, I'm aware there's one. And here it is. Are you serious? Sex only within a lifelong commitment of husband and wife? That's absurd. Everybody knows that nobody actually lives like that. Nobody. Nor should we even try. Some of us, that's what we're feeling. So let's talk through that for a few minutes. Friends, uh, our temptation today in particular is to believe that we're somehow liberated sexually, that we've come to the light, that the blinders have been removed and we're free now to really enjoy ourselves without consequence. Anything goes, it's consensual. It's 2017 for crying out loud. We all know this is something to be enjoyed and not puritanical. You know what's really funny about that is uh, the Puritans, probably three of us in the room know who these people were. They were, it's, it's a phrase that's used today, don't be puritanical, don't be so stuffy like the Puritans. But what's so funny about that is historically, <clears throat> the church had actually deemed about half the days of the year were not pure to have sex in. Okay, not for the priest, but for anybody. And it was actually the Puritans who came along and said, no, that's crazy. Sex is good. Enjoy it. So the, the word has come to mean something completely opposite of what has actually happened historically. But that's neither here nor there. The objection. <clears throat> If we're not careful, it can seem to us as though when we read these words in 1 Thessalonians 4, that our context is somehow so much better, so different, so removed from the land of the Bible. <clears throat> but really, we're not pressing forward into any new ground. We're actually repeating failed steps. 
of cultures who've gone before us. Let me see if I can take a moment to explain that. <clears throat> you see, modern sexual norms are not very different at all from the world of the New Testament. The Greco-Roman context Paul lived and wrote in was very similar, actually, sexually, to ours. In towns like Thessalonica, so the, the recipients of this original letter, Thessalonians, <clears throat> and even throughout the Roman Empire, husbands were not expected to be faithful to their wives. It wasn't even an, a desired norm for the culture. In many ways, women were treated as sexual commodities. Sex was seen as an appetite. So, you will leave at noon, and what are you going to be? Hungry. So, you're just going to go eat. If you're also leaving at noon and you're horny, what do you do? This was the world of the New Testament. Nothing more than your tummy with an urge. That's all sex is. Roughly 250 years before the Apostle Paul. So things tend to get more and more and more and more loose sexually. So before Paul, there was a letter written to describe this, and here's what it said. Mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day -day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children. If you were a man in the Greco-Roman world, that's the way you thought about this. I'll get a wife because I'm supposed to have heirs. I'll get a couple concubines because I got daily needs. And then a few mistresses for real companionship. And that was just the way it was. It was common in the Roman world to be having sex with four or five people at the same time. Now, there simply wasn't the expectation of marital fidelity. It's to those people, Paul said, this is God's will, that you stop all that craziness, that you live a pure life. Friends, we're not liberated. We're just repeating history, just packaged a little different. And just like history has shown, a refusal to follow God's instructions is only going to lead to harm, regardless of how liberated it might make us feel. Now, does a marriage-only sexual ethic sound absurd in America in 2017? Yes. To the majority of people, it does. Yes. It does, but it always has, and it always will. You see, this is one of those areas in which God's desire is that we would be distinctive, different, not because we're better, but because we've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with our bodies. 
My friends, don't make the mistake of believing that it is wise and good and healthy for you to simply follow your desires wherever they take you. Some of your desires are quite dangerous. Some of your desires, if you follow them, can be damning. Our sexual lives as Christians ought to be dramatically different because we follow Christ. One of the earliest writings outside of the Bible itself. So the New Testament was finished definitely by the year 100 AD. One of the earliest writings after that is a letter by a guy named Mathetes written to another guy named Dionysius. And in this letter, he makes this statement, speaking of Christians. He says, they have a common table, but not a common bed. Now, what did he mean? He meant, when you look at the lifestyle of a Christian, and as Christianity began to fan itself out over the Roman world, then part of what made Christians so weird was that they stopped sharing their bed. These four or five people didn't frequent the same bedroom. And that was strange. But it wasn't the only thing that was strange. Instead of sharing their bed, they started sharing their table. See, it was common in that world to share yourself sexually, but not to open your table, not to have friends, not to invite people to the table for a meal. Isn't that crazy? And so part of what made Christians stand out was their unusual kindness to each other and to the world. Kindness not sexually, but relationally. Common table, not a common bed. Friends, what if that became the norm for Church on Mill? What if what we were known for is not an arrogant, puritanical, we're better than you, we're above temptation sexually, but a rock-solid commitment to Christ and an honesty and transparency about the struggle and the pursuit of purity and then an unquestionable hospitality that welcomes people to our table. I think it would have a tremendous impact evangelistically that we might see more people come to Christ in 2017 than ever before simply because we follow the Bible's instruction to share a common table but not a common bed. Now, in a context where God's standard seems so foreign, I mean, let's be honest, it seems nearly impossible, doesn't it? In a context where it seems so foreign, it's maybe worth asking why. Why would God say sex is only for a husband and a wife together for life? Nobody else under any circumstance. Why? 
there are many answers to that question, but let me give you two. And I would encourage you to talk these out with somebody who's you're mentoring or parents with your children or in your gospel community. But to think through these together, these will both require more time than we have this morning. But I just want to mention them to you. One of them, you're probably going to say, yeah. And the other, I'm going to get some letters about. I know that going into it, okay? But let's consider the easier one first. The first reason, I think, the Bible would tell us why God says sex is really good, but only in this context. The first reason is sex is not merely physical. It's not simply body parts rubbing together. There's more to it than that. If you want a biblical reference, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Unquestionably, that is its point. It's emotional. It's also spiritual. Sex isn't something you just do with your body and then walk away from unchanged. You create an emotional and spiritual bond, not just a physical bond. Now, God knows this. And so, the wonder of sex in its context is something to appreciate. But the damage caused when it's removed from that context is something also to appreciate. God knows this, and God wants to protect you. God isn't mean and cruel. God's design is that you'd be protected from harm. Friends, when you give yourself physically to someone, you give far more than just your body. Now, I imagine the second reason will take more consideration than just this one sermon. But at least entertain the thought with me. Okay? Uh, sex that, that pleases God points beyond itself to something of the total commitment that God gives us. Isn't that the inevitable conclusion we must reach in the major metaphors the Bible gives us for God's relationship with His people? Now, I recognize that sounds really odd, but Old Testament, what is the dominant picture of God and Israel? A husband and a wife. In the New Testament, what is one of the dominant ways in which we're told, think of Christ's love for his church like this. It even goes so far as to say that's the whole point of marriage. Now, maybe I'm not being direct enough. Marriage is to be a picture of how God loves us. And God loves us with total commitment. You see, as Christians, we've experienced the perfect love of God. We're known and know God. So now we're to love like He loves. Look again at verse 4, if you're not convinced yet. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. <laughs> 
Why that last phrase? Why does Paul go out of his way to say, don't behave sexually like those who don't know God? What's the connection? Why do so many non-Christians live battered around by their lusts? Well, Paul's answer would be because they don't know God. Now, what does that mean? It means they haven't experienced his loving commitment. Therefore, they can't show the same loving commitment. Think of it this way. Two people hugging is a measure of commitment. Some of you, when you came in today, hugged each other. Most of the time, we don't hug random strangers. There's there's some measure of loving commitment demonstrated in a hug. Now, take your clothes off and lay in bed together. That's something of a whole new level of commitment, right? Why? Because that's how God loves. Now, does that seem far-fetched? Old Testament? When the people failed to obey God, What's one of the ways God's descri- God describes that? He calls them a horror. I don't think we feel this near as deeply as we should, or we take sexual sin far more seriously. Don't you see? Sexual commitment is to be an expression of total commitment. And so, When a husband and a wife are intimate together, that's a way in which they are pointing forward to the gospel. The full, total love, commitment of God to his people. And so God says, "Uh, don't think you can get whole body commitment. That's what sex is without whole life commitment. So it doesn't work that way. If I haven't pushed you far enough, this will do it, and then we'll move on, okay? I want to read a quote from one theologian who describes it this way. God says, I will come down to earth. I will penetrate you. I will put my love in you. I will save you. But you must commit yourself to me wholly. There can be no other gods. There must be an absolute lifelong commitment. There can be no other gods before me. If a marriage is supposed to represent Christ and his church, then isn't it only logical that that's where sex belongs? If what's happening is not simply two people experiencing um, some, I'm trying not to make a bad joke, some, some amount of time of pleasure together, if there's more to sex than that, if it's ultimately meant to in some way, shape, or form 
illustrate God's commitment to us, then it could just happen anywhere, anytime. But it's whole body commitment, and whole body commitment must go with whole life commitment. Why? Because that's the way God loves you. Sexual sin destroys what it's for. Now, friends, if you're not a Christian, don't miss the ultimate point of all of this. There is a God of complete love, genuine, pure, total love. Love that sees your nakedness, all your spiritual, emotional, and physical flaws and yet still holds out his hand and pledges himself to you in marriage. That's what Christians call the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, the perfect one, left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial, substitutionary death. All of your flaws, your sin, was placed on him. Died the death you and I deserved, rose again in victory, and now offers you himself that he might make you pure and spotless before the Father. Can somebody rejoice in that? Where is Dre when we need him? If you're ready for that today, then God is already about the work of saving you. Say yes to him. Turn from sin and turn to Christ. And then tell somebody so we can rejoice with you. And if you're here today and you're already a Christian, then brothers and sisters, let's set our minds and hearts fully on pleasing God this year. We are in a society right now that does what Romans 1 talks about. It not only says, do whatever you want to do, especially sexually, but then applauds and awards those who do it in a way different than God's design. But this isn't a new struggle. We're simply retracing failed steps. But Church on Mill, it can be different for us. Again, not because we're better, but because Christ is. God's will for you and me this year is our holiness. If you failed God sexually, then repent. Confess it to God. And then do something that may be the most difficult thing you've ever done. Before you leave the room today, confess it to someone safe and trusted. Because part of the way we experience the forgiveness of God is through the embrace of a brother or sister in Christ. And we also need the ongoing love and friendship and accountability so that we don't fall into the same trap. And then what is this passage's answer to sexual sin? What's the remedy? It's to know God. Do you want to live more sexually pure in 2017 than you did in 2016? 
<laughs> oh. That was not on purpose. <clears throat> I do, clearly. More purity in 17 than in 16. How? Well, if it's not living like those who don't know God, then clearly the solution is knowing God. One of the preachers I respect the most is a man who, when I knew him, 10 years, 15 years ago, was in his 70s. Still struggling to be sexually pure. And he said the only remedy for sexual sin is knowing God more. And I thought, you're a crusty old man. <laughs> but that's what 1 Thessalonians 4 says. Brothers and sisters, let's pursue knowing God more. Now, I'm right at our time, but please give me two more minutes. Look, look again at verse 1. Let's circle back to where we started. Finally then, brothers, we, we ask, we urge you and the Lord Jesus that as you've received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. I want to give you some good news. That word received in verse 1. Sometimes in the Bible that word is used to talk about receiving doctrinal truth. So receiving the gospel. Receiving the truths about God and believing them. It's often used in that way. But more often, it's used a different way. But a lot of times, it's used as chapter 2, verse 12 illustrates. We also thank God constantly for this, that as you've received the Word of God, okay, do you hear that? As you've received it, you, so you've heard truth and you've believed it. As you've received the Word of God, which you heard, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it is, really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. It, the Word is often used in that way. But more often, it's used, I'm speaking specifically to the people in the room who are in Christ, the Christians. You've not only received God's Word, you've also received the ability to live it. This is the great news of the gospel for the Christian. Here's what I mean. He's telling us in verse 1, you've, in, in chapter 2, he's saying you've received the truth. You've believed it. But now in chapter 4, he says, you've also received the ability in Christ to live it out. You have been given. You have received a gift. That gift is the ability to please God. And so, Christian, you live a received life. You don't have to, through self-effort, self-discipline, New Year's resolution, drum up sexual purity in and of yourself. If you try that, you won't make it this week. But, 
but you've already received it. And so you, you don't look inward for self-strength and self-sufficiency. You look upward to Christ, who's already given you a gift. And that gift is the ability to walk in His power, His strength. And guess what? Jesus faced every kind of temptation you did and do and will, and yet did it without sin. So whether you're struggling with same-sex attraction or whether you don't particularly like the spouse you have right now or whether you're bent towards the kindness of a coworker, you have a received life. That received life, yes, is truth to believe in, but it's also power to live in. Isn't that good news? God doesn't expect you through your own willpower to accomplish sexual purity. He expects you to abide in him, to walk in a received life. May we help each other do so this year more than ever before because that pleases God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this word for what it really is. Not the word of man, but the word of God. I have no question that in this room are people like me who have failed sexually and who have been impacted by the failures of others. And so I pray today, Father, that there would be conversations had that no one was planning to have. Pray that couples would address things that they have stuffed. Pray that those living actively in lifestyles not pleasing to you would repent. Pray for people who perhaps have heard the gospel today in a way that penetrated their heart, that God, you would save. And Father, help us to walk in what you have received, what you have given, and what we have received. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.